Luke 24, and we'll begin in just a moment in verse 1. And while you're turning, let me pause and turn to the Lord and ask Him for His help now. Father, You're so kind to us in that You've given us Your own Son to lay down His life for us, to rise from the grave because of our justification. And now as we open Your Word to think about Your Son and to hear from You, we pray that You would help us do it in the power of Your Spirit, that You would... Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us Yourself within Your Word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. And make the book live to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to begin reading in Luke chapter 23, and I'd encourage you to take some time maybe this afternoon to do that. If you were to begin in Luke 23, you would find that On what we now know as Good Friday, Jesus of Nazareth was trumped up charges, tried on trumped up charges and condemned to death while a convicted murderer was set free and hanged on a Roman cross and mocked by some and cursed by others and left there to die, gasping for air in front of a watching and angry crowd. And then... He was buried by a handful of faithful followers, mostly women, in a tomb cut into the side of a rock formation. It's an incredibly bleak and disturbing series of events that we read about in Luke 23. It seemed for all the world like this was the end of what had been an amazing three-year whirlwind of blessing and miracles and joy. And so that first Good Friday must have been quite a gray day indeed. But then... Luke chapter 24 begins with a word that practically begs us to keep on reading. Yes, Jesus died in Luke 23. Yes, they laid him in a tomb in Luke 23. But, isn't that first word of chapter 24 a marvelous word coming as it does on the heels of chapter 23? They laid him in a tomb, but... And sometimes one word in the Bible can make all the difference. And so it does here in Luke 24, verse 1. Jesus was beaten and scourged and mocked and spat upon and crucified and buried. But, and I want you to read the rest of the story with me, beginning there in Luke 24, verse 1. But, on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, 
marveling at what had happened. These 12 verses present us with some incredibly good news, don't they? But you may have noticed that the women who came to visit Jesus' tomb that morning didn't quite get it, at least not at first. They had come expecting to put the customary funeral spices in the folds of Jesus' garments and then to leave him there. Maybe they came with their sleeves rolled up, hoping against hope that somehow they would be able to push back that giant stone that functioned as the door to the mausoleum. But when they got there, verses 2 and 3, they found that the stone had already been rolled away and the tomb was empty and they were, we're told in verse 4, perplexed. You can imagine why they would be. Their mouths must have hung open. Maybe they rubbed their eyes to make sure they weren't simply seeing things. But no, Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. And they were utterly mystified by that. They didn't know what to think. And I find the fact that they didn't know what to think, I find their bewilderment in a roundabout way encouraging. I'm so glad that the Bible presents to us real people who had real fears and real doubts and real troubles and who were sometimes downright confused. For aren't we all sometimes just downright confused? In fact, God is often doing things and allowing things and saying things that leave us baffled. And that's exactly where these women were. They were baffled, they were confounded, they were perplexed. They'd been following Jesus, some of them, for three years now. And now they had come to his grave expecting to perform one last act of kindness. And when they got there, he was gone. And I think you would have been puzzled with them. And so would I. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus had already told them to expect this, hadn't he? When the angels showed up at the tomb in verses 5, 6, and 7, they said to the women, in effect, don't you remember Jesus told you that this was going to happen. He told you he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and he told you that he would be crucified and on the third day rise again. And then in verse 8, everything started to make sense to them, and they went and they told everybody that they knew. But when we find them in verse 4, they're perplexed. And I think what happened is that in the uproar of the crowds and the trial and the crucifixion, and the horror of it all, they had forgotten what Easter Sunday morning would bring. And because they had, because they were at a bit of a loss when they first came to the tomb, I think they provide us, these women provide us, with an incredibly helpful backdrop for Easter morning as we come ourselves today to consider the emptiness of Jesus' tomb. Because it's quite possible that some of us have come this morning, as it were, to the empty tomb, having forgotten some things. Perhaps you, when you were a child, had your mother or some church teacher or maybe a neighbor lady read the Bible to you and explain to you this whole business about Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter and what it really all means. But somehow as time has gone on and the hustle and the hurry of life has come upon you, perhaps you, like these women at the tomb, have forgotten some things or at least left them in your past. And now you're all grown up and the truth about Jesus is a little bit hazy to you. Maybe you're not sure if you remember it correctly at all. And others of you may have come in this morning and you're just outright perplexed. Maybe you're here because someone invited you, but you didn't grow up in church. 
And we're glad that you're here. And you're here wondering this morning, what's this really all about? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And does this preacher really believe that? And what does it all mean anyway? Or maybe you found yourself in recent days asking yourself the question that a friend asked me just a few years ago. He said to me, why do they call it Good Friday anyway? I mean, Jesus comes down to earth and does nothing but good to people. He does nothing but help people and heal the sick and befriend the outcasts, and they kill him for it. What is good about that? Those are good questions. And perhaps some of you came today saying to yourself, I need to find out what this whole Jesus thing is really all about. I hope that you have. And others of you have come today knowing that you need to rediscover that understanding of and faith in Jesus, which are at this point in your life merely memories. And there's good news this morning. The women were perplexed, and yet in chapter 24 we find that they didn't stay perplexed for long because beginning in verses 6 and 7 and extending all throughout the New Testament, God provided His people, His bewildered followers with the answers that they needed to these perplexing questions. And this morning, beginning here in Luke 24, I want to make an effort at unfolding for you what they discovered, what these women and the other followers of Jesus discovered. And we're going to see in the next few moments that there were really two main causes of Befuddlement for these early followers of Jesus. Two main things that perplexed them in the three days between Jesus' death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. One puzzling question, as we've already been seeing, is why is this tomb empty? Where is Jesus? And the other question that challenged the disciples in those days between the crucifixion and the resurrection was this question. Why was Jesus in that tomb in the first place? Why was he there? Why did this have to happen? And what I'd like to do with the rest of our time today is just try to track down the answers that these women and the other disciples discovered to those two puzzling questions. How does the Bible answer those two questions? Why was the tomb empty and why was Jesus ever in the tomb in the first place? And so we'll take a look first at that second question. Why was Jesus in that tomb in the first place? Well, as I mentioned... This was the other question that bothered the disciples in those days immediately following his death. Why did this have to happen? In fact, if you just scan down a few verses here in Luke chapter 24, you will see two of Jesus' followers expressing just that question. Verse 21, they said, We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But alas, verse 20, he's dead. And now our hopes are dashed. You can almost hear the disappointment that's in their voices. They're saying, in essence, we don't understand. Things were going so well. And then it was all over. Why did it all happen this way? Why did he have to die? It's a good question. It's still a good question 2,000 years later, isn't it? Why did Jesus have to die? And why did he have to die in such agony and misery and shame? Well, the quick answer, the easy answer, is to say that Jesus died because a handful of religious leaders and a handful of godless Romans decided that it would be politically expedient for Jesus to die. He's gotten too popular, they said to themselves. 
The common people might rally around him. And then our unquestioned opulence and authority around here is going to be gone. And so he's better off dead. And therefore we read that they plotted and they schemed and they whipped the crowds into a frenzy until we were left with Luke 23 and the horrific events written there. That's the simple answer to the question, why did Jesus die? And there's a great deal of truth in that answer. Jesus did die because a number of Roman and Jewish leaders were jealous and worried about their positions. But as I say, that's only the simple answer. For as the followers of Jesus had time both to converse with Jesus himself after his resurrection and to study the Old Testament, they began to discover as time went by that there was a far more significant reason that Jesus ended up in that cold tomb on that Friday. There was more going on behind the death of Jesus than simply a few angry men. In fact, just a few weeks after Jesus died, the apostle Peter found himself preaching to a crowd of thousands of people in Jerusalem answering the very question that I'm trying to answer now. Why did this happen? Why did Jesus die? Why have all these things, terrible things happened in our city? And here's what Peter said to the crowds about that in Acts 2.23. Why did this happen? He said this, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed him. Now, did you notice the two different things that Peter says there? He doesn't pull any punches with the crowd. Many of the people that Peter was preaching to that day had been in the bloodthirsty crowds several days prior. And Peter does not exculpate them from their responsibility for what happened. And he certainly points the finger at the leaders, the godless men who hatched the plot in the first place. And yet, he also recognized, didn't he, that there was more at work on that Good Friday than just the anger of men. Jesus died, he said, not only because men were angry and hateful, but also because it was part of the predetermined plan of God. Peter says God wanted Jesus to die. God was the one who delivered him over. It was his plan. And that adds a whole new layer to our question, doesn't it? Why did Jesus die? Well, because these terrible people did it. But God wanted it to happen. Why? Why in the world would God want Jesus to die? Isn't Jesus God's son? And if so, why would God want his son to die and to die like this? Why would God deliver his son over to be put to death at the hands of these godless men? Well, that's the question that I've dedicated my whole life to trying to answer from the Bible for people. To, to open this book and to say to people, here's the answer to that question. Why did God want his son to die? And I trust that that's why God has brought you here this morning, so that we might open the Bible together and hear God's response to that question. It's an earth-shattering question. God, you sent your son to die? How could you do that? Why would you do that? And to get the answer to that question, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible. In that verse, you can turn there if you like, or you can listen in that very first verse of the Bible, we read very simply, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, I know that assertion is up for debate in modern culture, but the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, and I do want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. It's on page 1126 in those Bibles. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's existence and his character have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that really true? Well, Paul says, yes, it is true. If you just look out at the world, at the natural world, if you look at the solar system and the ecosystem and the cardiovascular system and so on, Paul says if a person simply looks at the world without a preconceived bias against the idea of a creator, it's obvious, he says, that someone somewhere made all that we see, all of these incredibly complicated organisms and systems that surround us every day. For instance, if one looks at the human eye with all the rods and cones and muscles and lenses and fluids and so on, all of which must work correctly and work together for you to be able to see me standing before you this morning. If you simply look at something like that, it just makes good sense to look at that, to look at all the intricacy that's there and to say that didn't happen by chance. The human eye did not come about by dint of unintelligent or impersonal forces. Or, in other words... When a video camera does many of the same jobs that the human eye is able to do, we do not look at the video camera and assume that that video camera just appeared by chance, do we? Of course not. I know when I hold one of those little gadgets in my hand that someone far more technologically savvy than me must have made that thing because it works and it's got all these moving parts. And so it must be with the incredible human eye. It works, and it's got all the parts. Someone had to have made that. And the same could be said about the human brain or the human heart or the rotation of our planet and its precise life-enabling distance from the sun. We could say all those things didn't just happen by chance. That's what Paul's saying. When we look at the world, it is plain that someone far greater than us made the things that we see. And by virtue of that fact, someone made us. You and I are not here by chance. We were created by a designer. We're not autonomous human agents. We belong to someone who designed us. And if you read on in the book of Genesis, you'll discover that that one who designed us, the creator, also loves us and designed a world that would be good for us He governs his world with laws, both natural laws and moral laws, that if followed, make life good and fulfilling and worth living. He's a good God, we learn, a loving God, one who gives to us and continues to ensure that we have things like oxygen and water and food and heartbeats and eyesight and so many good things that are a part of our daily experience. He's a good God. Someone may say, well, if there's a creator and if he made everything so good, why is it that some people's eyes don't work? Why is it that some people's hearts have holes in them? Why is it that the synapses in some people's brains don't fire correctly? Why is there cancer? Why is the ecosystem seemingly so messed up? If these things were designed by a creator and he is a good creator, why do there seem to be so many flaws in the design? And that's another good question. 
And the third chapter of Genesis gives us the answer. We learn that God made us and made everything good and he blessed the first human beings with a world that was absolutely perfect. No flaws, no defects, no sadness, no death. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, we find that they rebelled against him anyway. They decided they would do what was right in their own eyes rather than doing what God had said. They broke God's moral Law And when they did, God put a curse on the planet that affects the way his natural laws work. Things don't work right anymore. In other words, because of humans' rejection of God's ways, the world now is warped and stunted and dangerous. Suffering and disorder in the world because sin is in the world. And though that doesn't mean that your suffering is necessarily directly one-to-one correlated with some bad thing that you did, what it does mean is that because of sin in the world in general, your sin and mine, people suffer. There are dire consequences that have come on the planet because of it. The world is under a curse, the book of Genesis tells us. Not because the Creator is not good, but because His creatures rebelled against Him. And though that curse with its disease and sadness and suffering and frustration affects you even when you're doing right, there is one part of the curse on the planet that does always have a one-to-one correlation to your individual behavior. We're told in Genesis 2.17 that those who sin against God shall surely die. Indeed, those who sin against God, the New Testament tells us, are faced with the prospect of eternal judgment when they die. And here's the thing. Each one of us, each man and woman and boy and girl in this room this morning with me at the top of the list, and each of the seven billion men and women and boys and girls who are not in this room this morning have joined in that rebellion. We can see the world just like Paul could, can't we? In fact, Science and technology enable us to see things that Paul could never have imagined. And when we see them, we say, someone made this. Our consciences tell us that someone made us. That someone keeps this great ball rotating and spinning around the sun year by year. And yet none of us, back in Romans 1, not a single one of us, Paul says, properly honors him as God. Romans 1.21 Even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. In fact, let me just ask you, do you really honor God as you should? I mean, I'll just say up front, I don't. But do you? Are you as grateful to him every moment of every day as you should be? Have you always done what you know you should do? What you know he would have you to do? Do you really consistently honor God and give him thanks for all that he does for you? That's the definition of sin. Sin isn't just that I stole something or I lied or I killed someone or I committed adultery. It's all those things. But sin is often far more subtle than that. Sin is any time that you and I fail to act as though God, our Creator, were really our Creator, really our God, really our God. It's any time that we know God, Romans 1.21, but we fail to honor Him as we should and to give Him thanks as we should. And if that's the definition of sin, then all of us are sinners. Indeed, if that's the definition of sin, all of us are worse sinners than we thought we were. 
It's not just that we make mistakes sometimes or that we have a few character flaws. It's that our consciences know that someone made us and has authority over us and has given us every advantage and inducement to follow his ways. And yet so often we push the thought of that creator out of our minds because we just want to do what we want to do. No matter what happens to other people and no matter what God thinks about it, we just want to do what we want to do. Now, we may not say that to God's face, but our actions often show that we love ourselves more than we love our God. And as I said, I'm at the top of that list. I spend my whole week, think about this, my whole job is to study this book and to teach this book, which tells us what God says. And I know that God is around me every day, giving me the very air I breathe, keeping my heart beating, blessing me with friends and family and good food and all of those things. And yet all throughout the day, I find myself sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally pushing God out of my conscience so that I can do what I want to do, so that I can indulge myself. And if you're honest with yourself, you do exactly the same thing far more perhaps than you will ever realize. And therefore, you and I, the Bible says, do have judgment hanging over our heads. But does that sound too harsh? That God would condemn us because we sometimes ignore Him? Well, if it sounds too harsh, it's because we are chronic underestimators, aren't we? We underestimate things like how often we really sin. We underestimate the one against whom we are sinning. He's not just a local king, is he? We're sinning against the Creator, the one who made us. We underestimate sometimes just how much we don't want to hear what he has to say. To shut our ears and to turn our backs upon the one who made us and who keeps us alive every minute of every day is the height of ungratefulness. It's the child who walks out on loving parents and refuses to ever return their phone calls. Only in this case, the father that we're walking out on is God himself, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, our very maker. And yet, I do that all the time. And so do you. All of us, if we look in the mirror without a preconceived bias in our own favor, which is hard to do, but if God enables you to look in the mirror without a preconceived bias in your own favor, you know that you're not what you should be. We are sinners. And Romans 1.32 says at the end of the chapter there, those who do such things are worthy of death. Now we're ready to answer the question, why did God's Son have to die like that? Because... Even though men and women and boys and girls have turned their backs on God, and even though they deserve to die in their sins, God still loves His creatures. And He wants to save us from the destruction that we are bringing upon ourselves. But God's also upright. You wouldn't expect, in fact, you'd be appalled if a Hamilton County judge let a convicted thief or child abuser go free simply because he felt sorry for him. And so we shouldn't expect that the judge of all the earth will somehow bend the rules or sweep things under the rug or subvert justice. Should we? May it never be. God always does what's right. So He must punish sin. And yet, the Bible tells us that He loves sinners. 
And He wants to save them from their sin. So what's God to do? How can God justly punish sin and at the same time mercifully forgive sinners? Well, we read the answer to that question at the beginning of the service, didn't we? From Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. Let me just read to you the fifth and sixth verses again. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 about Jesus. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's why Jesus had to die. Because God loves and desires to save sinners. And yet He cannot leave our sins unpunished. He cannot simply look the other way and pretend it never happened. Sin is far too serious for God to ignore it. It must be punished. And therefore, the only way for God both to punish sin and at the same time forgive the sinners who commit it would be for someone who has not sinned, someone who does not deserve to be punished, to come and take our death sentence for us, to come and be our substitute at the bar of God's justice. And yet... There's no one in the world who's like that, is there? We are all sinners. There's no mere mortal who could have come to die the death that we deserve. For all have sinned, we learn in Romans chapter 3, and fall short of the glory of God. All mere mortals have their own sins for which they must die. And thus, none of us could ever take upon ourselves the death that someone else deserves. Only God is without sin. So the only way for God to pour out the punishment that we deserve would be for Him to pour it out on the head of a substitute. And the only way that there could be a substitute, since all of us have our own sins to die for, the only way that there could be a human substitute without sin to die in our place would be if God Himself would come to earth, take on flesh, and become that substitute. Enter Jesus, who... John chapter 1 tells us, is God himself made flesh. Jesus is God become man. And the book of Hebrews tells us that as God become man, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because he's human and because he is without sin, he was qualified to stand at the bar of God's justice in our place, as our substitute. He, because He was human and without sin, was qualified to die the death that we deserve, to take the punishment that we deserve upon Himself. Now incidentally, if it still sounds a little far-fetched that our sins are bad enough to actually deserve death, just look carefully at the cross. If sin weren't that serious, if sin weren't really worthy of death, would God have sent His Son to the cross? If sin could be atoned for in any other way, would Jesus have had to die? Surely not. But the fact that he did proves that it must have been the only way. Sin is that bad. Someone has to die for it. And that's why Jesus was in that tomb for three days. That's why God delivered him over to die. So that when you someday stand before the judge of all the earth, and you will, when you stand before him, He does not have to deliver you over to death 
forever in hell because Jesus died for you. Jesus absorbed God's judgment for you so that we do not have to. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That is incredibly good news. In fact, that's the best news that anyone could ever hear. And it brings us from Genesis 1-1 all the way down to the end of Luke chapter 23. But as that first word in Luke chapter 24 reminds us, we have to keep reading. So now, much more briefly, let me ask that second question. Why was Jesus in the tomb in the first place? Now, why is the tomb empty? That's the question that confounded the women at the tomb early that Sunday morning, wasn't it? Who rolled away the stone? And where is Jesus? Why is the tomb empty? Well, they didn't have to wait long for the answers because the angels appeared to them and said in verse 6, He's not here. He has risen. He's risen. That's the reason why we're all gathered here this morning, isn't it? Christ is risen. In other words, it's not that the trauma of the cross simply caused Him to lapse into a coma and then that the cool of the tomb awakened Him. No, The angels didn't say he woke up. They said he's risen. Jesus literally died and he literally bodily rose from the dead on the third day just as, verse 7, he prophesied. If you're not in Luke 24, it would be good to go back there now, page 1056. He is risen. And the Apostle Paul, writing in the first century, when many eyewitnesses would still have been alive, said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that the risen Christ had appeared to 500 different people. In essence, Paul was saying to his contemporaries, if you wonder about the reliability of this whole resurrection story, I have 500 witnesses I could call to the stand to corroborate it. In fact, during that first century, when it would have been most feasible for a private investigator, to turn up evidence that would have debunked the whole resurrection story, when it would have been quite doable for one of Jesus' powerful enemies to have located the tomb and opened it up and proven to the world that Jesus was still inside, no one could do it. The people who lived closest to the events, who had the most opportunity to disprove them, and many of whom who had great motivation to disprove them, could not gainsay the resurrection. Like it or not, early people, believers and unbelievers, just accepted what Luke writes here. Christ is risen. And why is that important? For a number of reasons, but this morning it's important as proof that Jesus really was who he said he was. Here's a man who traveled around telling tens of thousands of people that he was God's son. Telling people, as I've been telling you, that his death would accomplish their forgiveness. Those are large claims. I'm God's son. Not only am I God's son, but I'm God made flesh, and I can forgive your sins, and my death is going to accomplish that. Those are large claims. And all of it would have been absolute lunacy had he not risen from the dead. How would we know that Jesus of Nazareth was not simply another charismatic guru with a God complex? if he hadn't risen from the dead. The world's seen plenty of those, but none of them yet has risen from the dead, has he? Indeed, the world has seen many great leaders, prophets, preachers, popes, politicians, and so on. And many of them have made great claims. Some of them have founded world religions. 
Some of them have claimed to be able to rescue the world through their teachings or their political policies. Some of them have claimed that they have the authority to forgive sins. And many of them have gained massive followings, but not one of them ever said, I'm going to die and rise again on the third day, and then actually did it. But I present to you this morning a man who has. I present to you this morning a man not who simply claimed to be able to teach you how to obtain forgiveness, but one who claims to have obtained it for you. I present to you this morning not a man who claimed to be a mere prophet, but one who said, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. I present to you this morning a man who is not one of many good religious options, but one who said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I present to you this morning a man who rose from the dead to prove that all of those claims were true. And that means I need to ask you one final question. Not this time a question of Luke 24, this time a question of you. What will you do with Jesus, the Jesus of the empty tomb? What will you do with him? It's an important question to ask because though God sent his son to absorb the penalty that our sins deserve, though God sent Jesus to die for the forgiveness of sins, he does not pour out forgiveness indiscriminately. That is to say, not everyone will be forgiven of their sins. God requires a response to the message that you've been hearing this morning. God requires a response to the gift He has given us in His Son. And there are really only two options, it seems to me. On the one hand, you can respond to what you've heard this Easter Sunday the same way that many of Jesus' followers initially responded that first Easter Sunday in Luke 24. When the women returned announcing that Christ had risen, we read in verse 11 that To the apostles, these words appeared as nonsense. And perhaps some of you will leave this morning thinking just that. And I pray that if you do, God will eventually change your mind as he did for these doubting disciples. But there's another response to be observed in Luke 24, isn't there? Most of the disciples thought the news of a risen Savior was nonsense. But Peter actually got up, verse 12, and ran to the tomb. And he went home marveling. He went home, in other words, believing. And I have prayed and prayed and prayed this week that some of you would go home today, perhaps for the very first time, and you will not face eternal punishment when you die, but will instead, like Jesus, live forever. That's what God requires of you today, that you believe. And what does that mean to believe? Well, it means... Not only that you accept the Bible's testimony about Jesus as true, but also that you, with your soul, entrust yourself to Him. That's what believe means, to entrust yourself to Him. Or the Bible usually says it like this, place your faith in Him. Namely, that you would hate your sin and that you would turn to Jesus Believing that He is your only hope for forgiveness. That He is the one, the only one who can make you right with God. That His death is the only thing that can forgive your sins. It's the only thing. Let me remind you of something. I cannot, your pastor cannot, certainly cannot 
forgive your sins, no matter how many times we may pray for you. There's only one mediator between God and man, Paul wrote in the book of 1 Timothy. Only one. Only one person who can take you to God and make you right with God. Only Jesus, who died the death that you deserve, can forgive your sins. Pledges to behave rightly from this day forward cannot make up for your past sins. Your religious upbringing cannot atone for your sins. Your baptism cannot erase them. Your works of penance cannot save you from them. But Jesus can. He has already done all that needs to be done for God to forgive your sins and declare you right with Himself. That's why Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians that we're saved through faith in Jesus, not as a result of works. By trusting what Jesus has done, not by trusting what we can do. Paul knew that we would be tempted to try to patch things up for ourselves, to try to get enough religion to somehow outweigh our faults, to rely upon men rather than God to pronounce forgiveness upon us. So Paul reminds us forgiveness comes by trusting not in what we can do, but in what Jesus has done. You don't need to add anything to what he's accomplished, and you mustn't try. Simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone, and he will rescue you. And oh, how willing He is to do so. How willing the Heavenly Father is to do so. In fact, before we finish, just think something out with me. What does it signify that God was willing to give up His only Son to be mocked and beaten and scourged and spat upon and crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross and dying in utter shame and misery for you would you give your child to rescue sinners would I what does it say that God did what love he must have for us what mercy he must have upon us what compassion what a God and what a son who is willing to go through with it all for sinners like us Can you walk away this morning from a God like that? Can you leave this morning and just push off what you've heard again? Can you go for one more minute without falling on your face and crying out, God, I need you. I've lived my whole life ignoring you, forgetting you, disobeying you, dishonoring you, shoving you to the edges of my conscience, and yet you love me enough to send your son to die for me in my place? I do trust you. I do hate my sin. I do believe in your son, Jesus. I do rest in him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I do take him as my master and as my king. He is all I need. And he is far more than I could have ever imagined. Are you willing to come to God like that this morning? Straight to God. Remember, you don't need me to go to him for you. You can go straight to him this very moment where you sit, trusting in Jesus and calling upon His name, and He will hear that cry. But will you, like Peter, run to Him? Will you leave today believing that these words that you've heard are nothing more than nonsense? Or will you leave today believing, trusting, resting in the Jesus of the empty tomb?